e-longevity, bringing space, crypto, and longevity science discussion to the masses. Welcome. We're happy that you're here. Okay. All right. So we're going to start it up. Welcome to the e-longevity podcast, everyone. This is our flagship effort to bring e-longevity to the masses. My name is Cool Andy Neat. I'm one of the early Discord admins, and I love Dagalon almost as much as Codename Lou loves Dagalon. Um, I have a deep love for Methuselah Foundation as well, <laughs> and they are on their mission to make 90 the new 50 by 2030, and uh, we're going to hold them to it, and, uh, and, and we, we love that about them. With me today, I, I have Britannia, Britannia, <laughs> yes. uh, double zero, uh, Britannia. You wanna you wanna introduce yourself again? Um, I'm Britannia zero zero. Um, I have 16 years of healthcare experience on the commercial side in rare disease um, uh, healthcare, and I've been a Dogalon holder since May of 2021, and I'm excited to be here this evening. We have a pair of very special guests with us today. Um, we have Spring Baruz and Andy Lee uh, from Vincere, um, Vincere Bio. So uh, welcome, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Dogalon podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, cool Andy. <laughs> it's kind of a tough name to <laughs> say out loud. Um, maybe I'll go, I'll just go by, for purposes of this, I'll just go by Andrew if that works. All right, we'll, good. we'll go with that. So <laughs> tell, tell us about your journey and how you got to Vincere um, and maybe how you know each other um, uh, and, and, and what you guys are about with Vincere. Uh, I've looked, especially in regards to Parkinson's disease and mitochondria. Uh, so how we know each other actually came first. So I guess we can start with that. We've been married for... Uh, 20 years. We just celebrated the 20th this year, so it's been some time. Uh, not that I, you know, I was old enough back then to be married, but you know, we'll stick to that. I'm actually 120 years old. Just people can't see me, so you know. <laughs> um, from, from a longevity standpoint, that's amazing. Right, right. So. It's good advertisement. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, so that's that's uh, how we started, and we actually have quite different backgrounds. Uh, so my background is in neuroscience, um, Andy's background is in computer science, which I'm sure you'll hear about. Um, and uh, we were working completely separate fields, and uh, we sort of decided it was a really good time. We're seeing all the progress that's being made in the computational side, um, and decided it's a really good time to apply some of that technology to the uh, the problems that we're seeing with biology and you know health uh, in general just health span so uh, that's how this whole thing started um yeah so as spring mentioned uh my background is in software engineering i actually wrote my first lines of code in elementary school and then got a bachelor's degree and did it professionally for about uh, 20 years and uh when spring got her postdoc at the mayo clinic i had a chance to move to new city, new industry, and, and jump a little bit. And as in 2008, just as the uh, foreclosure crisis was starting to, to really you know, ramp up and <clears throat> found myself getting into a company building foreclosure automation software for uh, one of the biggest, biggest mortgage servicing companies in the, in the world. And uh, 
within a couple of years, we had 90% market share in that, uh, which was a wild ride of massive amounts of data and, and big technical challenges to solve. Uh, but it was also a kind of short uh, time frame problem that, you know, once we solved it, it was solved and everything kind of moved on. And uh, so I found myself with time to tinker in the nights and weekends. And so Spring and I started talking about the uh, massive amounts of data that were coming up in the biological spaces. And this was almost 10 years ago now. And, uh, and the, the lack of hardcore computer engineering that was being employed in those areas. And so we started hacking on nights and weekends to build some tooling that would allow us to use human data to make better hypotheses about what's going wrong in neurodegeneration. And uh, that went really well. We got some really neat tools that I'd be happy to talk about. And that pointed us towards uh, these, these pathways for Parkinson's disease that turned out to be hallmarks of aging as well, and in particular mitochondria, which I'm sure we'll tell you a lot about here as we talk. Um, but that really caused this crossover into this realization that a lot of human disease really is rooted in these core mechanisms that decline with age. And if we can fix those uh, mechanisms that go wrong as you get old, you're not going to fix one disease. You're going to fix dozens at a time. And, and so that's where we started Vinceri with a new um, you know, set of small molecules to improve mitochondrial health. So instead of snapping little twigs, you're going for the whole branch. <laughs> um, you know, you talked about human data sets. What, what types of data sets are you, are you, are you talking about in terms of like, um, in terms of research, like studies, or are you talking about more like electronic medical records or both or? Uh, a little bit of both. So one of the key things that we point on is um, Mendelian genetics. It's one of the few places where we know we have cause and effect relationship that you can look at disease phenotypes and endpoints and know that they were caused by some you know, single point mechanism. Mm -hmm. And so Parkinson's is interesting there because there are a dozen or so Mendelian monogenic forms of the disease that we could triangulate from. Uh, now we've built on top of that using protein-protein uh, interaction data, how, how we understand that the components inside the cell interact with each other, uh, transcriptomics that tell us how many, uh, what the quantities of those entities inside the cellular system are, which different cells have different uh, makeup, which then cause different behaviors. Some, some cell types will then end up getting sick and some cell types are fine, some age fast, some age slow. And so you can use some of those as clues. Um, and now going beyond that into methylation and glycosylation and all these other uh, post-translational modifications that happen. So you end up with these genetics and then quantities of proteins that all get state changes. And if you can look at all of that in a system, you can really get a good understanding of what the system is like in an ideal state mm -hmm. and then what it's like in a disease state or what it's like in a young state and then how it degrades over time. Uh, and so that's kind of the way we think about the, the biology. And so then you're just kind of finding what the ideal is and then sort of swimming uh, upstream to, to find out and, uh, or I guess taking snapshots of the disease state and trying to sort of reverse engineer what's going on there. Yeah, if we can take like, you know, for instance, looking at simulated 
Parkinson's disease cells and what's different in those versus a healthy age-matched human cell, and then you know see if you can toggle different molecular switches to make the Parkinson's cell behave more like a healthy cell. Hmm. You mentioned Parkinson's, and I know that's the focus for Vincere. Um, and I know in, recently in the news, you were branching out into longevity and also cardiac. What other areas are you looking at? You know, one of the things that we, we started with Parkinson's disease, and that's kind of a passion project. It's an, uh, it's an area that I've been working on for some time. But aging is the biggest risk factor for Parkinson's disease. It shouldn't should come as no surprise to anybody. And that's true actually for a lot of diseases, right? For um, heart disease also, uh, aging is the biggest risk factor, even for uh, diseases that maybe aren't kind of, you know, you can, you can injure your kidneys when you're young, but even then you're at higher risk when you're older. So uh, these kind of repair machineries just decrease as you get older. And, you know, as we started to work on this for Parkinson's disease, we sort of realized, okay, this has much bigger application. And if you look at, you know, um, any of these papers that talk about the hallmarks of aging, mitochondria is always one of the, the key ones, you know, one of the, the key seven or eight, uh, nine, uh, depending on who you talk to, hallmarks of aging. And we actually know that if you modulate this pathway in, let's say, fruit flies, you can make them live longer and they have better health span if females are fertile for a longer period of time. So it's suggesting that you're not just extending that old part of life, but it's actually contributing to the process of aging. So once we sort of realized that, once we realized that, you know, <laughs> this has potential to actually modify the way that we age, uh, it was kind of hard to stop thinking about it. And, and uh, now we're, you know, obviously we're very translationally oriented in that we want to make therapeutics for people. Um, we're not just kind of interested in the research. We are interested in research, but, you know, really we're interested in the translation from animal models to humans. Um, it, it's hard to not think about it right we're all aging this is something that's affecting the entirety of uh, the planet and not even limited just to humans right all the animals uh, age as well so huge impact can, can i make a request uh this is just into the open air uh, for the scientific community to, to not increase the lifespan for mosquitoes <laughs> uh, just i mean fruit flies okay it's what you know it's whatever but um but just for mosquitoes sake yeah yes. Um, Britannia, you were, you were talking about cardiac. I mean, like what, um, what has Vincera been working on in, in the cardiac world? It's a, it's a space that's, that's near and dear to me. So, yeah, it's, uh, we're, I would say in the exploratory phase for, uh, in the cardiac space, uh, there was a paper that came out last year showing that, uh, in a accelerated aging model, uh, you have cellular senescence in the heart as you would in, in, in an aged heart. Um, and if you modify this pathway by, let's say, increasing one of the proteins or decreasing one of the proteins, and these are the ones that we're working on, you're actually able to reduce the amount of cellular senescence or aging in the heart. So that's sort of what got us interested. But the heart is one of the most energetically demanding tissues in the whole body. So um, myocardiocytes, which are you know your, this, uh, some of your heart cells, are 25% mitochondria by volume. So just a quarter of those cells is mitochondria. That's how energetically demanding they are. And it sort of makes sense if you think about the heart has to pump you know, blood and it's, it's such an important function. Uh, so it, it sort of makes sense 
that this would be an area that would be affected if your mitochondria get damaged, which naturally happens as you get old, and uh, if your repair machinery is defective, which again happens as you get older. So it's kind of a natural uh, segue into it. Now, as far as translation is concerned, the reason I say this is kind of exploratory at this point is um, we don't do a lot of health care in general. We do sick care, right? So you go to the doctor when there's something wrong with you. We don't really do a whole lot of preventative. Uh, so I think that's one of the things that we're thinking about. You know, we, you, the path to the clinic is really difficult if we want to think about cardiac aging. But for something like heart failure, That's a good point. Um, so, so Vincere is also working um, on the, well, I'm not sure if Vincere is, but, but uh, I believe Andy is also working on the software side in terms of developing uh, models, right? Is, is, this, is this true? In, ter in terms of developing models for um, taking a look at Parkinson's, taking a look at, yeah, I mean, do you, you, you were about to say something, so I just, I wanna hear what you're gonna say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we've we've built um, quite a bit of tooling in the past and continue to do so. Uh, everything from uh, spatial temporal physics-based simulation of cells, where we can take all that interactome that we know about the way cells work, along with the spatial layout of physics-based um, manner, we can play things out over time and they change and behave pretty much like a biological cell would behave, but in silico. So we can measure a lot of things that you can't otherwise do. Um, that was one of some of our earlier work to validate our hypotheses for Parkinson's disease. And we've um, more recently been doing multiomic modeling of um, patient data. So in partnership with the Michael J. Fox Foundation, who have this really cool data set from the Parkinson's Progression Marker Initiative, which is tracking um, biological data from patients and healthy controls. Uh, we've imported over 50 terabytes of data uh, from humans that include whole genome sequencing, uh, RNA-seq, methylation data, and a few other types, along with um, clinical uh, readouts on like UPDRS scores for their Parkinson's um, uh, kind of behavioral changes and uh, a bunch of other demographic and, and uh, details around the, the patient population measured every six months over like a seven-year period looking at these different data types in concert so we can do ensemble modeling across different um, types of data for known individual humans. We can also now do longitudinal tracking and start to look at regression of how these things change over time. Um, you know, the, the big one in the in the uh, longevity space are the methylation clocks that everybody's talking about, where like uh, Steve Horvath developed these uh, methylation clocks that you can off of a blood test or a saliva in a predictable way over chronological age on a large sample. If you can train a machine learning model on that, uh, you can get accuracy within you know three or four years, depending on which model and who's doing it. Uh, to predict somebody's age off of that. So the longevity world is now looking at that in terms of calling it a biological age, which you know maybe is questionable depending on who you talk to, but there's some progression there that uh, if you are 
doing things that cause your biological age to be lower than your chronological age, you're probably doing good things that are making your biological system happier. And if you're doing things that cause your biological age to be higher than your chronological age, you're probably doing things that are not good for your, your longevity projection. The same kind of concept can be used to look at, uh, at uh, Parkinson's disease progression, uh, potentially subclassifying patients, and all kinds of interesting things. What, what sort of, I mean, so you, you said 50 terabytes of data. Um, uh, how are you processing that amount of data? I mean, are, are, you know, you must be using something better than the, um, than the brick of, uh, of, of a laptop that I have in front of me. I mean, do you have to rely on, um, do you have to rely on supercomputers? Are you borrowing, are you borrowing uh, um, I guess, processing space? Or, or power from? Yeah, so we we started doing uh, NVIDIA GPU-based computing a long time ago, uh, which was uh, pretty exciting. That was the the really enabling technology that allows it allowed us to do the physics-based simulation that, that was helpful. And we, we actually got patent on that, I don't know, eight years ago or something. Uh, and but because of what we were doing with that technology, we already had these clusters of GPU-enabled servers that we were able to apply to the, the kind of data science approaches. Uh, now the GPUs are becoming somewhat readily available in uh, Microsoft Azure, AWS, uh, uh, Google Cloud. They all have uh, instances you can spin up. And so you know we, we've kind of got this blend of some uh, on site and then can scale up uh, big projects in the cloud for short time periods. They get kind of pricey to run in the cloud all the time. Though. I I I could only imagine uh, the subscription prices on that, or or it's or it's, I'm sure it's a la carte. So um, yeah, yeah, they're, they're frightful. <laughs> um, spring. Oh, go ahead. We were very fortunate to have uh, sponsorships from NVIDIA, IBM, and Microsoft all, all through our early development days who, who actually funded a lot of the, the cloud-based uh, scale we needed. Um, and then those projects were done in partnership with uh, uh, grant funding from the Fox Foundation as well. I mean, it, it, that's amazing that you've been able to get um, so many large entities behind you, you know? I mean, it, it's how validating is that, like, in, in, in terms of, like... You know, you know, you're going in the right, you know, towards the right space uh, in in the long run. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure on a day to day, you're going, oh well, that's not it, and you have to tweak. But um, to have to have such uh, such big names behind you with uh, with open support and uh, financial support has, has got to be very rewarding. Yeah, definitely. Um, was that <clears throat> Andy? Was that challenging for you? You know, for like how how big of a challenge was that to get the support? Um, so I spent a lot of time in the corporate world, and so interacting with those large organizations, I, I kind of knew how to reach out, how to find the right programs, how to kind of network into some of those um, you know, programs, and, and find our way around that. So so that part was um, somewhat uh, okay, um, and then you know, there there were a lot of technical challenges getting some of those things up and running uh, but we've we've had a, a, a great stream of um, really talented uh, people working with us throughout the years um, one of the things
since we started very early was doing um, internship programs where we would bring students in to work for a semester or two. And you know, we've we've hosted dozens of computer scientists and biologists throughout the years who helped with some of the design and build out and you know brainstorming on some of these challenges that like nobody in the world knew how to do. And we were trying to build something that didn't exist. And uh, so it was a lot of fun. Uh, and it's been great to you know, see those uh, kids go through and now on to med school and, and computer engineering programs and like you know, building, building things in their own right. Spring, so you, I mean, you, you studied neuroscience, right? And you had your, your hand in it. And how much on a day-to-day basis with Vincere are you actively doing research versus working with world-class scientists that are doing research? How much is, is it still hands-on versus how much is it management at this point? Um, I like to be pretty involved. Uh, I, I enjoy the science quite a bit. Uh, that being said, I haven't actively been, been doing the you know pipetting in the lab uh, for some time, uh, but I am I, I right. you know I'm in the lab most of the time. If if I don't have to be somewhere else for a, a business meeting or something, I I like to be in the lab. I like to think about it, know what's going on, um, really brainstorm on it. And I think that that's one of the things that uh, is an advantage for us. And I would highly recommend other people do is having technical founders who actually understand the science and care about the science and are passionate about it. Uh, those mm-hmm. are kind of pretty you know i think that can be really what differentiates you from a, a, like a banker starting a company for example yeah. i i wholeheartedly agree <laughs> so in, in spring i mean you're, you're the ceo of the company right and you're managing it but what excites you the most from a research aspect and then also running the a healthcare business so what excites you the most about the future Oh, oh gosh, uh, what a <laughs> hard question to answer because there are so many exciting things. From a science side of things, you know, just the fact that we can make modifications to life is really exciting to me. Uh, and I grew up kind of in an environment where that was encouraged, you know, where uh, when I was little, it was any time, you know, where there was like a flickering of the lights, my parents would be like, well, if Edison hadn't, you know, done this and if Tesla hadn't done this and we wouldn't have that at all we would all be sitting in the dark all the time so I was always very aware that uh, you know individuals can really change the course of how we live Uh, but to do it in a biological setting is I would say extra rewarding because I think we tend to accept a lot of that as a lot of that status quo as kind of just normal like oh yeah people age that's normal oh yeah old people get Parkinson's that's normal it's, and, and you can kind of say that's not normal. And from a scientific perspective, just the fact that we, we are able to do that in any capacity, I think is incredibly rewarding and exciting. From a business perspective, um, you know, I, it, it's been a learning experience for me. Uh, it, it's really exciting to be in the same room as some of the most successful uh, founders uh, in the world. I, I, we just came back from the JP Morgan conference and you know you get to see some of the the best and brightest people in the world uh the uh, few years ago when they had it in person bill gates was speaking i got to ask him a question and i was just you know it's it was it, it's cool here <laughs> i don't know how else to describe it but it's, it's pretty it's pretty rewarding yeah so 
So Vincere is working towards solving, well, mitochondrial diseases, and then uh, hopefully Parkinson's. Um, I mean, even even from a, a spitballing standpoint, I mean, how how close or far away are we from realizing, or or is maybe a consumer to getting their hands on a, a product that you guys are that, that you guys are at least um, uh, managing or touching in some way, and and if if you're not able to answer that question, we can we can strike the question. <laughs> so. Oh, no, we can sure. answer it. I think it's uh, it, it, it's perhaps longer than most people would like. It's longer than we sure. would like. You know, I would really like to see something that we can get into the hands of uh, the, the public, you know, market uh, very quickly. But we can at least get it into the clinic. So I think one of the um, one of the problems in the longevity space has been that there are a lot of, uh, let's say, supplements and, and other things where they have not been placebo-controlled clinical mm-hmm. trials. Uh, and those are really, really important. You know, uh, you want to know if you take something, first of all, that it's safe, and second of all, that it actually does something, right? And uh, aging is one of those that progresses slowly enough that you really can't, you know, y- you have to take something for an extended period of time. And most people who take something also exercise and, you know, probably doing caloric restriction. And so it's really hard to tell. And I've, I've been those people, you know, taking supplements and not knowing really if, is it having an effect or not. So I would say that's the bright side of it is we're looking to get something into the clinic within the next 12 to 18 months, which is, you know, we can, that's, that's pretty quick. Yeah, that's um, but the first thing then when it's in the clinic are to answer whether it's going to be safe for people to take long-term and then whether it actually has efficacy for something, you know, and, and we're going to be looking at um, diseases of aging as kind of a measure of aging, but we'll look at all the hallmarks of aging at the same time. So in terms of, in terms of measurement, I mean, um, I mean, how were these meds? Because you, to take a a longevity medic medication and then to bring it into the clinic and then, and then hope it's doing its job, not necessarily just from a Parkinson's standpoint, but, but from preserving, um, uh, I, I guess, I guess the mitochondria in in this sense and, and having healthy mitochondria, would those markers be the ones that Andy was talking about a little earlier um, as being indicators and correlative of, of, of health, you know, from a, from a long, cause, because we don't have, we don't have 40 years for someone to keep taking a pill and then go, Oh, that guy, guy looks pretty young, you know, <laughs> looking, still looking pretty right. good. So, <laughs> um. yeah, exactly. Uh, absolutely. Uh, that's the, the markers that Andy was talking about are, you know, we're developing some markers specifically to look at mitochondrial health. And luckily, we're not the only ones. So the science kind of comes back together from various different groups, both academic, industry, um, and and we are all able to build on each other's work on that front. And I would say the Parkinson space is quite a nice space. Everybody's very collaborative. So it's been nice to, uh, to, to work with that. And some of that is due to the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, facilitating some of these collaborations. So yeah, I can't give them enough of a shout out. Uh, they, they're really fantastic organization. And um, and yeah, as, as far as the aging as well, the aging field has been very good in coming up with these bi- uh, biomarkers of aging, uh, you know, whether it's methylation clocks and, you know, now people are uh, more specifically looking at clocks that might reflect inflammation or, you know, other hallmarks. And I think we'll have a lot of that coming up in the future. So that's really the key thing is can you actually measure because aging is it progresses so slowly 
can we have something that measures it in a more accurate way? But I will say when the methylation clocks are, you know, your, your uh, error is uh, a few years still. So it's, it's not, you know, you can measure within a, a month or, or two, and there's still quite a bit of variability in okay. that. I would encourage everyone. So, um, we're not, we're not signing off, but I, I'd be remiss to, um, not mention this. Check out uh, Vincere Bio, V-I-N-C-E-R-E-B-I-O.com um, forward slash science. Um, it, you guys have some really cool videos there explaining healthy mitochondria, diseased mitochondria, um, and including uh, what some of these uh, small cells, I'm sorry, small molecules that you're researching uh, may do uh, for mitochondria and, and for ultimately for the person. So um, I think that's really awesome. Education is key. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for oh, that. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> we put them out there hoping that somebody will get some benefit from it. Com completely. I'm, I'm already benefiting from it. So, um, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, and Andy and Spring, where do you two see um, blockchain play a role in your space with, and within your longevity and then also with um, Benacer? So um, I think probably the most interesting thing that's happened recently are the the, the DAOs like BetaDAO that are um, producing new collaboratives and new ways of funding science. I mean, there's always this challenge of triangulating or, or matching up ideas and people and capital that, you know, VCs who have you know, money and teams of entrepreneurs and residents but are constantly hunting for an idea to, you know, start forming a company around. And you've got academics who, you know, have, you know, talent and, and ideas, but they're struggling to get money. And, you know, it, it's just, there are all these, um, it, they never seem to line up. And so uh, innovations in that space, I think, have a lot of potential. And so if we can, anything that we can do that can reduce the friction between good ideas and good teams getting funded, uh, particularly at some of the earlier stages, I think are um, promising. Uh, I still think a lot of those are uh, having some growing pains to learn some of the governance and how those funding mechanisms will work and how it works with an academic and how it might work with a company and what IP rights are going. And you know, if you take a small seed grant from a DAO, is that going to screw up your IP position so you can never partner with a pharma down the road? And what does that do to finances? And, you know, will we end up seeing good technologies that die on the vine because they can't raise the $100 million that they need to do a, a phase two clinical trials or something? Mm -hmm. If I can add to that too, I think from a non-technical perspective, it's been really interesting to see people who are interested in, in you know, kind of blockchain and, and uh, that side of things, which I would ordinarily not say is related to science or drug development or longevity in any way. We do see that there's a lot of interest um, from that kind of world, uh, the, the blockchain world and the crypto world. Um, and it's been, I think it's been uh, good because it, has encouraged a lot of out-of-the-box thinking. I think it also scares kind of the, the more traditional um, uh, drug discovery uh, uh, players, but 
and and sometimes you know that's sometimes it's not good sometimes the out of the box thinking is really out of the box and it's probably not going to work but i think it's still very good to push the limits and make people think about oh okay are we just doing that because that's the way we've always been doing it or are we you know are we doing it because there was actually a good reason and there you know we need that rigor and and, and that piece of science in it so i think it, it adds a little bit of out of the box thinking that we haven't had in the kind of traditional drug discovery world as well um I was reading. Sometimes I do that, and and That's there was surprising. an art. <laughs> um, there was an article that was talking about how you know the eureka moments in science are happening just less and less. Do you do you feel like that's that's actually happening, or do we feel like we're getting so um, or or something else so down a rabbit hole that maybe it's just not like. Uh, able to translate into a really good news article, you know, I, or, I mean, like, what are your thoughts on that in terms of neuroscience, in terms of um, uh, medi medicine development um, I, for either Andy or Spring? I think we both have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's an Did I strike a nerve? No, no. Not it's a neuroscience a, joke. It's well, an no. interesting uh, paper that, that received quite a bit of uh, buzz over the last few weeks. And, you know, yeah. my, I, I think there are two points there. One is the, the noise in the academic publishing world has dramatically skyrocketed. The volume of papers has gone way up. And as a result, the proportion of those papers that are uh, getting cited goes down. I think people just don't have time to absorb it all. And so the picking the signal from the noise is challenging for everybody in the field. Uh, the other side of it is I think a lot of the truly disruptive science has moved out of academia where it hits publications and into private sector where we're seeing massive, um, you know, engineering feats overcome with reusable rockets and battery technologies and, you know, longevity medicines are, you know, people are playing with those at Altos and Calico and aren't hitting the publications right away. They're, they're trying to figure out how to get to something useful and commercializable and typically people publish so that they can get funded. And if you have enough capital that you don't need that, you can just go in your walled garden and, and build. Uh, and I think we've seen waves of this through history where, you know, the Xerox Park and Bell Labs, you know, kind of tried this model 50 years ago. And, um, you know, some, some have done it well for a little while. Some have not at, at some point, we need the global collective to come back together and be able to build on some of these. So it's interesting seeing a rebalancing play out, but I think a lot of the innovation is still happening. It's not necessarily where the authors of those papers um, chose to look for their disruption scores. And, and spring, you had some thoughts on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, I'll just add to that. Um, the method that they use to kind of uh, measure disruptive which is you know a very catchy title but it would have been nice if the the title more reflected what they actually looked at which was how the the way that things are cited uh primarily mm -hmm. so patents being cited and publications being cited in the academic world it's true citations you know are usually people cite things i think in the uh, industry it, that's you know patents may not especially citations of patents may not reflect uh, 
actual disruption, right? We see all of these things that are uh, that are being used by the public, and the public doesn't cite anything. Right. <laughs> so right. I think there, it would be good if we if they had some additional measures, you know, like user adoption. Uh, how many people are using these, and how that has changed the industry, the impacts on the rest of the industry, the impacts on the uh, kind of standard of what used to be. And we see this, you know, with so many different things. I think uh, the, a couple of sectors have been heavily disrupted. I mean, uh, the the um, uh, uh, the the um, communication sector. <laughs> funny word to not be able to think of uh, sector. I mean like it wasn't that long ago that we didn't have the capability to do this and now everybody's on zoom or whatever you know podcasts and all of these yeah. all the time right the, the world has just become such a smaller place and I don't know how much of that gets cited does that really get cited so I guess I, I don't know who said this but it was it was a song that said good old days weren't always good and tomorrow's not as bad as it seems and I kind of agree with that I think I think there has been a lot of disruption. I hope we do see more disruption. That's not to say that I think, you know, we, we shouldn't be pushing mm-hmm. to have more disruption. But I think it was a bit over-exaggerated. I wholeheartedly agree with you both. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're sort of in this universe right now where people, I, I feel like, want things that get engagement. Uh, and that leads to a bit of over-inflation, I think, of claims. Yeah, I, I think they were maybe looking, they, they had some sources and then we're just looking for um, us to talk about it, I guess, uh, at this point. They, so they sure they succeeded win. at that. Those buggers, they win. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, I will ask a question. Um, there's, a, there's a classic question that Ashley is going to ask, but um, my question is, what's the... What's your favorite um, music album of all time, front front to back? Like, what do you listen to as like your go-to um, that you might not be in the mood for today, but like you're just like, okay, this is this is the one. This is the iconic album. Is this a, does, can it be a greatest hits album or yeah, does it that's actually fine. have that's to be? Fine. A, <laughs> it's okay. I, I I'm such a nerd. I listen to Queen like regularly still. That's solid. <laughs> it's like a band from my time, but just that never seems to age. And I think they have something for every mood that I ever am in. So that's my go-to. That's awesome. I'm, I'm going to go a little off script and go with the Spotify playlist that um, <laughs> last, <laughs> the modern days, um, about a year ago. Lo-fi, lo-fi beats to study to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, about a year ago, um, there's a there's a VC, Matt Conwall, who shared a playlist to get hyped up for VC pitches. And I have been playing that on repeat for like the last year. It is just through and through. It's great stuff. It crosses like a ton of genres and is like, if you need to do like hardcore um, planning, prepping, working, fighting through the pain, like it's uh, it's an entrepreneur's uh, like heaven right there. Spring's like kind of nodding, but she's like, I've kind of heard enough of that playlist. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, and what what is it called again? Um, the it, Matt Conwell is the uh, person who shared okay. it. Uh, I can shoot okay. you a, a link to the playlist, uh, but it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, we'll have it in the show notes. All right, I do have my own version of this as well. Of, of I'm actually adding hype, it to my playlist. The Spotify hype playlist. <laughs> this is um 
you might not know this, but you're going to be um, causing so much more disrupt disruption in the world and science and technology because people are just going to get so hyped from finally listening to that uh, playlist go. that, yeah, you're, you're the catalyst for change, Andy. So that's fantastic. <laughs> um, and then, Ashley, what's the classic question? Oh, the classic? What are you currently reading? <laughs> so the 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 book I was actually just reading on uh, is one that nobody's going to have heard of, um, but it's called The Secret Sauce, um, written by Austin Allred, who is the founder of uh, Lambda School, which is now um, something else, but it's a, a startup uh, that's. Uh, basically a boot camp for software developers. Uh, but uh, before that, he was into growth hacking. And so he uh, funded his first company by selling books on growth hacking and growth hacked his way to funding that would do stuff. So uh, it's very, it's one of those examples where he used the tricks in the book to sell the book. Uh, kind of fun. So like at the end of the book, it just says like, you got played. Like, or, yeah, or like yeah, you, yeah, basically, basically. You got booked, yeah, you got strategized. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, awesome. I mean, some of it's uh, probably a little dated now, but, uh, you know, it's it's how to build an email list and a landing page and how to, you know, oh, nice. growth hack uh, Instagram or Twitter and, and use that to build following and then use that following to get people to your landing page and get from your landing page to a list that you then start to send marketing emails to. And, you know, you can uh, pretty quickly build up a, a valuable audience that way. That's that's great. Spring, you're up. Yeah, so I have, uh, I read a lot less lately. I just listen to uh, books on Audible, um, which is, you know, just give the eyes a rest. Mm -hmm. And I usually have like four things that I'm cycling in between, which is why this was uh, hard to answer. So I was just looking at my, the four that I'm on right now. But I guess I would say that the latest one is um, The Vanishing Face of Gaia, uh, which is not a new book, but uh, it was a book by uh, James Lovelock, and uh, he just passed away recently, so that kind of inspired me to start reading it. But I'm not too far into it, so I don't know if I recommend it yet. Get back with me in, in, in a month or so, and I'll let you know. <laughs> well, it's an interesting concept, though. I would, I would, I would encourage people to think about the Gaia um, uh, kind of uh, concept. Speaking of um, get back with you in a month or so, um, if, if your estimates are maybe 12 to 18 months for hitting the clinic, can we, can we reconnect with you in, in a little while and just kind of see how you're doing and, and where things are? I would love to do that. Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. Hold us accountable. Right. Good, good. <laughs> we will. We will. Um, well, thank you so much, both of you, for taking time out of your day uh, to meet with us and, and the community. And um, yeah, so um, Andy uh, Lee and Spring Baruz, um, thank you so much of, Vin of Vincir Bio. Um, you guys have been amazing, and uh, we've really enjoyed your um, education, insight, and, uh, and humor today. So thank you. Um, I'm An Cool Andy Neat and Britannia no, Double Zero. Zero Zero. <laughs> I like to say double zero. Thanks so much. Yeah. That's fine too. Um, but uh, this is uh, the official dog along. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Andy. Uh, this is the official Dogalon podcast, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.